0: Welcome to another episode of How To Make It In Africa. This is your host, Fadil Jawi. This podcast brings you some of the best stories of African entrepreneurship. African entrepreneurs have their own great successes, and they will be on this show to share them. We have in-depth conversations with entrepreneurs, creatives, and other change makers. Together with our exciting guests, we explore and dissect their motivations their challenges, and the strategies to succeed across Africa and to build businesses that scale regionally and internationally. Today's guest is building the Spotify of Africa, reimagining the listening experience of African music, yet staying faithful to the local DNA. Now on to the show, and I hope you enjoy listening. Hi everyone, our guest today is Martin Nielsen. Martin is the co-founder and CEO of Mdundo. He moved to Kenya in 2012 as entrepreneur in residence for 88MPH, an African investment fund with a focus on early stage tech startups in Kenya. Over the past five years, Mdundo has grown to one of Africa's leading music services with more than seven million monthly active users, primarily from Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Ghana, and Nigeria. The company works with 90,000 musicians across Africa and has a licensing deal with Warner Music Group, Believe Digital, and TuneCore. In September 2020, the company was listed at the stock exchange Nasdaq First North Growth Markets in Copenhagen. The aim is to provide music lovers easy and affordable access to music. Martin, welcome to the show. Great to have you today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So one of the reasons why it was important to um, have you with us today is I want to emphasize the role of expats in boosting entrepreneurship in Africa and enriching a diverse entrepreneurial ecosystem. So you were based in Denmark, and one day you just suddenly told yourself, I'm going to join 88 MPH in Kenya. So can you take us through the process that led you to that decision and what attracted you to the African continent and to African business?
1: Yeah, no, of course. No. So I, I moved to uh, to Kenya, as you said, in, in 2012. And and basically uh, what happened prior to that was that uh, I was studying in a university in, in London and I... I had a, a, a trip or like a volunteer experience in, in Africa after my, after my first year of university um, where I was in, uh, in Uganda and it gave me a, a feel for the continent and it gave me a feel for what was, uh, what was happening here across Africa. Um, but as I came back to university, I didn't really uh, think of it as, as much more than a, a really good experience and, and a really good a sort of summer uh, vacation uh, volunteering in, in in Uganda, and then, as I was moving on with my studies, um, I came across this uh, Danish entrepreneur uh, in the newspaper who had started an investment fund uh, and wanted to invest in in mobile tech in in Africa and um, I thought it looked uh, really interesting and um, I, I I liked my experience in uh, in East Africa uh, in the first place, and so um, I decided to to reach out to him and and ask him if he's looking for any help or need any assistance. And if he did, I'd be happy to come and spend uh, a few months to to sort of yeah work with him and and, and get a better understanding of uh, how Africa is. And so um, I met him in, in Copenhagen uh, um, a little bit later that year. And after a quick chat, um, we sort of agreed that if everything turned out um, as we were expecting, then I would I'd come to uh, to Kenya and 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 help him uh, set up this fund. Um, an accelerator um, uh, as well, and so, yeah, so it, everything did work out, and uh, about a year li- later, I found myself on a plane on the way to kenya and um sort of in a nutshell, that's how I ended up here
0: and, and that was straight from college
1: uh, actually, I was still studying at the time, and I was thinking I'll, I'll do a uh, a a year or so <laughs> in between two two uh, university years. I wanted to come here a bit, get a bit of experience um and I thought was, so. So actually, at the time, I was still technically speaking in university. Yeah, that was that was that was that was really uh, my entry into it. Um, I did manage to finish up uh, later later on. Um, but um, I wasn't expecting to spend uh, to spend nine years here. I was expend- expecting to spend maybe nine <laughs> nine months or a year, and then going back to, to uni.
0: Yeah, that's what we always say. <laughs> <laughs> that is how, that's how it happens. That's how it happens. But did you always have the entrepreneurship calling? Or is it something that just, you know, came later on, you know, as you as you experimented?
1: I, I think I always had an entrepreneurial calling, but I was not expecting to start a business straight out of university. Uh, I was expecting to, uh, I was seeing myself uh, trying different things. I thought this was a really good experience to learn. Uh, like, so I was studying business studies. So the most sort of obvious career path would be some some sort of strategy strategy management consulting, that kind of area. And so I think I'd probably seen myself doing that um, a big part of my of my early career before I sort of jump into something myself. But it ended up not being taking me much more than a few months before I started my, my own business.
0: Yeah, that was pure serendipity. <laughs> yeah. I heard a few times, you know, positions called entrepreneur in residence, you know, I mean, I I hear that in Silicon Valley, hear that in in, in London, in a few uh, venture capital firms. So tell us more about what it means to be an entrepreneur in residence and, and, and the experience at an investment firm, like, like 88 MPH. And is it something that you would recommend to fellow entrepreneurs, you know, first and why, you know, before starting straight ahead?
1: I think is there's, there's different levels to that. And first, first of all, I think the term is probably used differently in different places. Um, so I can only talk mm-hmm. from my from my own experience. Um, and I think sure. secondly, 88 miles per hour itself was like, it was an investment fund, but it was an operation of a handful of people, if not less. Uh, so three, four, four people where the, the founder was very heavily involved himself and had this idea of investing into mobile tech in Africa. So it was by no means an established sort of organization or we kind of just landed here, trying to figure out how do we how do we do this and how do we go about this. Um, so it was that itself was an entrepreneurial experience in my in my in my view. Um, the actual fun part of it. I I was sort of actually initially hired to help them set up this accelerator, uh, sort of help them attract entrepreneurs and residences and help them sort of attract startups and try and, and help them from 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 scratch setting up this accelerator program. And I think quite early on. Um, my, my own business, as Amdundo as started taking shape, that's when the title actually became more entrepreneur and residence and I became more like the people that it helped out uh, selecting for this program. And so what it is, is essentially in 88, what it was, was you were hired in to assist the, 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 the portfolio companies in different uh, various areas um, that they could need. So it could be that you have some design skills or you have some uh, business, uh, business case um, uh, creation of business case skills, or financial model skills, or any other sales skills for that matter, um, or product um, that that we saw a need for uh, within many uh, different different uh, startups in the portfolio, and then throughout the, the, the accelerator program, you would sort of help out uh, where you could with the with the portfolio companies, and. Um, with, with a sort of end goal of either you have a three months uh, in, in Kenya where you are working with a lot of really cool uh, uh, companies and then you go home and, and you had a good time or potentially you find someone there you want to work with um, either sort of uh, becoming a part of the early team or some sort of uh, co-founder status or whatever you want to sort of call it at that stage to sort of be a part of, of building yeah. that business from, from early on.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of an organic approach to things.
1: Very much. There was no commitment to anything. The only thing you commit to really was to be here for, for, for the period of time and to spend your time helping out the startups at the best of your uh, abilities. Um, and obviously for the portfolio uh, companies, it meant that there would be a, a bunch of people in who uh, was just there to help and had an extra pair of hands. Um, we, we were seed level, so many of the, the companies are one, two, three people. Like It's really just the founding team who had a, a great idea and were uh, very, very early days, like often a pre first customer in their in their in their pipeline, um so in their in their in the process. So it was really early days and so an extra pair of hands at that stage can, can be really, really valuable. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. And 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 having a good time in uh, uh in Kenya doesn't hurt either. No exactly. <laughs> it's
1: a, it was a really good time and like that that's definitely yeah. it. Like you have a very very good uh, social um Connection, I think, both with the entrepreneurs and with each other, and and a very good learning experience as well.
0: You were interacting with uh, quite a few startups, and so you know, probably quite a few sectors. And I can imagine you started having you know different business ideas. So, so tell us about the beginnings and how the eureka moments from Dundo uh, came about.
1: Right. Yeah. So actually, what's interesting is it it wasn't really my moment. Um, Well, I guess it was at some point, but. Basically, what happened was after I landed here and sort of a month into to my uh, to my Kenya experience, I started chatting with my uh, my um, my my boss and his boss's boss, which was the uh, the person who started the fund, and uh, they had already before I arrived had this uh, discussion around music and and, and had met some uh, some musicians uh, like sort of by chance and and discussed how is music distribution taking place, what sort of How's the music industry really in in East Africa? Um, And um, all of us, uh, or the company is also a a Danish company like uh, myself, I'm a a Dane, and um, we've obviously seen, already at that time, uh, back in 2012, the massive impact that Spotify had um, like starting off in in Sweden, Scandinavia was one of the really early uh, regions on that that whole trend. And so we've seen that massive impact it has had on the music industry and people moving from... All kind of illegal uh, ways of uh, consuming music into uh, a legal stream, and so I think it was natural for us to have this discussion, and they had had the discussion before I arrived actually so it, it's it 's kind of their idea um, and 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 I had a bit of extra time with my hands, even though I was working for the for the fund and started spending a proportional time of my uh, a proportional part of my time on this uh, idea of the business and and I remember very clearly the uh, the, the, the fund manager he told me, uh, there, the, if you can if you can validate that there's a business here before we start the accelerator program, then we'll take it take it in as, a, as an accelerator, and you'll be you'll be part of the core team. Like at that point, we hadn't really discussed who's doing what, or it, it was very sort of a loose discussion. But he was basically just saying we think it's really cool, and if if you can validate that there's some sort of customer interest here, some sort of basic validation of this idea uh, of a music service. And you want to do it, then we'll be happy to take it in as a business, really, into the Accelerator program. And so with a great amount of help from, from both of them and uh, the CTO of the fund as well, who uh, helped me build the, the first version of the product, we managed to get uh, some validation, both from a, a client perspective and from the music industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they, we ended up making it a portfolio company.
0: So, uh, And then what you just said, I'm going to call it Ndundo. Or, or or who decided on the <laughs> who decided yeah. on the name? Well,
1: I guess if I can take any credit for it, then it's probably the name because well, not a hundred percent, but I decided it. Uh, so the the idea of the company name, we had a working title for it uh, for a while. I actually can't remember what it was, but just sort of so we called it something. And then when we started seeing some validation, and I think. I think what was really interesting for me at this stage was that I'm, i' was working with two uh, guys who were setting up an accelerator program and one of them was was owning it and the other one was running it and they were very obsessed with process I think if you work with any accelerator program or any sort of early days uh, people who are very much into early days company creation a mm. uh, process is a very obsession a very very big obsession how are we doing things in which order mm. and so I was really fortunate that both of them were sort of a part of the founding team. It was, it was, we were discussing the idea together and they are so today still a part of the founding team. Um, and so they were very focused on, you know what, let's not do a line of code. Like do one piece of paper explaining what you're doing and go to uh, the biggest telco in Africa and ask if they want to buy ads from your service. And only when we start getting some sort of uh, traction that there's actually a potential for this from a monetary perspective, then we start coding. And so they were very sort of, I think there was it was, a, it was a very big. Uh, I was very fortunate to be in this environment where actually it was more important for them to prove that the process was right and that there was a way to do it. And I was kind of the the, the guinea pig for that, uh, so that they could show all the other portfolio companies this is how you should the other things you should do things rather than necessarily uh, the product itself. Um, and so the name the name Amdundu came up as we started having a bit more traction. And I actually just wrote a I remember making a long list of. Uh, music-related words in English, and then I asked a number of people in the office, uh, Swahili speakers, so most of them Kenyans, to help me translate it into Swahili and try to understand what what are these different um, terms that are are interesting. And um, Mdundo came up, and more importantly, it was available.com, which is also a very big criteria for for name. And uh, we thought it sounded nice. We thought it was a really cool brand name. Uh, we thought it could work outside Swahili-speaking countries as well, but had a very strong identity of Africa because it is a Swahili a word. Um, so that's kind of how it came up, um, and it means it means beat or rhythm
0: in uh, in Swahili. No, it does. It does sound good. Uh, it's uh, it's catchy.
1: I think so as well. At least it has been yeah. catching on since then. Yeah. So something has been going well, well clearly right. <laughs>
0: clearly. <laughs> <Yes>. so, <laughs> I, I, I liked when you. Um, Described like the 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 beginning of the the process that um, you actually you know um, visualize the, the the concept first before even you know coding and already went to you know to advertisers etc. Because typically you know you'd imagine people spending six months you know coding and uh, building the product. And so it's a very interesting approach, and to know that there are other ways other ways to go about it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I was extremely fortunate. Like th- there's definitely elements in it. I think. The fact that there wasn't none of us were founders in the sense of let's start a business. It was just a discussion over 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 lunch, really. And and I was fortunate in the sense that I had brilliant people around me. And 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 I guess the fact that no one felt like they were the the founder of the company like sold the same way you do when you sort of start something from scratch means that it was more an experiment really than anything else for all of us. And it also meant that there was no one who sort of in the sense, in this, in the sort of literal sense of the word, took a little risk at least before the fund put in any funding. It was much more about an experiment and trying to see, figure out what we could do. But what made me very fortunate was that even if I didn't have funding or didn't have sort of maybe that uh, drive, that uh, if you, if it was my, me who actually founded it myself, you can imagine. I can imagine someone coming in and saying, "Okay, I need. I really need to. I quit my job uh, from, from tomorrow onwards. This is my. This is my baby." That drive might not have been there, but I was very fortunate that I was receiving a salary, so because I, my job was to, to do this. And so, yeah. so in that sense, I felt like we could maybe allow ourselves to uh, it, it create a really good environment for, for following the right process. Let's put it like that.
0: And, and essentially what, what what you did together was to quickly test the hypothesis with the market. like does the market really want it at all or not, before even starting to build? So I think it was a pretty smart way to, uh, to go about it.
1: Definitely. definitely. Yeah. Like my, my immediate boss, who was here, here with me in Kenya, also a Danish guy running the fund, was an absolute brilliant uh, salesperson. And I, like, I, at the time, I was probably 21, 22 years old. And it was my first sort of real professional job. So uh, in the early days of it, I was just following orders, really, even though it was, uh, like I was very much listening to their advice. And I took it as orders because I figured they would know better. And so I very clearly remember we entered this uh, meeting with Airtel, which is uh, one of the biggest uh, telcos in Africa, if not the biggest. But he got a meeting with the marketing director somehow, and he stepped in and he just he sold the product like it existed. And at no point, at no point was anyone asking, "Can we see the product?" Or yeah. like he just sold it with such a confidence. <laughs> and he had one piece of one piece of paper with a. A simple like <laughs> word document where he had photoshopped some basic uh, picture in there yeah. and then we started it together with a, a big Kenyan musician who he brought up with us so we had a, a big musician in the room uh, sitting to his he had a big musician in the, room, in the room sitting to his right and I was sitting to his left yeah. and so there was no questions asked like the marketing <laughs> director never asked well how far are we with the product or whatever yeah. and when the meeting was over he basically said well we, we would we'll be happy to uh, to engage and, and advertise on the platform and, and help you get off the ground. And then we left in the car thinking about, okay, how are we going to build this? Because we've already sold it. And so that was a really big lesson for me in terms yeah. of how much your imagination and, and, and his ability to draw a really clear picture yeah. in the head of the people in the room of what it is we're discussing made it uh, virtually... Like it felt like it was there and there was no questions asked. And I think having engaged with a lot of early days companies, I think this approach is a lot better than an early stage version of your product. Because the early stage version of your product, uh, well, at least in my experience, it always looks kind of shite. Yeah. Like it, uh, sorry, <laughs> but it kind of is never really that sure. great. And so, so when you have in a very early days and you're showing your product, and then, then you're so proud you built the first basic steps, but the person you're showing it to is just seeing something that's not functioning. And you spend uh, the whole meeting explaining how you're going to change A, B, C, D, rather than actually selling the vision and selling what the, like explaining what the product is going to be without showing it, actually sometimes creates a much clearer picture of what it is that you're building Mm. than showing something basic that isn't that great.
0: I think what he did is collective visualization. I think I'm just, uh, I just created a new concept here. So (laughs) I think that's what he did. I guess so. That's what he did. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about you know the, the music industry and and how it, um, how it is structured and its issues. Can, can you just summarize quickly you know like the main issues of the music industry and and the related online streaming business, including um, illegal downloads, etc.
1: right. well so that is the main issue like and, and if you look at the last like since the last, what twenty years ago or so, um, when 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 internet really started picking up, it's the issue has been that music is just extremely easily available, free of charge, anywhere online. And I think what happened in the Western world, uh, um, and it was also starting to happen all over because Spotify is pretty much everywhere um, by now. But uh, what happened back then in the Western world was that they managed to find a way for you to go from from the illegal sites and into the legal sites, but still having a very pleasant user experience. I, I really think that's what happened. Like, you were motivated to join Spotify because it was, a good, it was a better experience than the illegal sites. I don't think morale or ethics had much to do with it, mm. to be completely honest. The customer Definitely. didn't really care uh, if it was illegal or legal, but it was actually a better product than the illegal services. And I think that's what really drove that transition I'm sure a lot of people in the music industry will say they did a lot of cool campaigns to anti-piracy and all that kind of stuff. But my my own opinion is that what the only thing that really helped was that a really good alternative was created. And and Spotify wasn't the only one. Um, there's tons of other uh, services driving that exact same thing. Exact same thing. But they were definitely the biggest one uh, or, or, or are today. And so that's really what happened. Um, and that's, that is what I think also is the issue in, in, in Africa and in many emerging markets is that you still have vast majority of all music consumption being illegal. So our estimate in Africa is that only about 7 to 8% of all music consumption is legal. Mm. So more than 90% of all music consumption is actually through an illegal channel. Yeah. And following the same philosophy is more to do with that they don't have a good product to do it illegally than it has to do with ethics or morale. And so I think that is really what uh, the foundation of our business is, is to create that exact same alternative, but for a different user segment than what Spotify was created for.
0: So then, you know, what's Ndundo's value proposition and how does it like compare to the Spotify's of the world?
1: Right. So, so I think there's, there's two parts of that. I think one thing is that as much as when we're talking about it here, it sounds very much like it's the exact same thing. From an operational perspective, and again, I know that doesn't have much to do with, with value proposition, but from an operational perspective, our businesses are extremely different. Number one being, globally, music consumption in any given country, let's say uh, Denmark, where I'm from, or, or anywhere else in the Western world, a majority of all the music that is, being, that is popular is owned by one of three different uh, record labels, either Sony, uh, Universal, or or Warner. Mm. And they they pretty much sit on all the music rights of all the music that any of us are consuming globally. And that basically means that a very key partner for Spotify, of course, were those uh, three partners. Because without them, you wouldn't have the product. You wouldn't have anything for people to listen to. Um, But in Africa... That's not the case. The African music industry is extremely fragmented, so pretty much every artist is working by themselves. There's not really the same structure of record labels. There's definitely not the same structure in terms of copyright and copyright enforcement. It's pretty much non-existing. So from a sort of supplier perspective of our value chain, it was just found fundamentally different. And so, what we ended up creating is this sort of interface, more similar to an artist who's using SoundCloud or YouTube or whatever, where the artist themselves can come in, they can release their music through our platform, uh, they can control, they they have complete control of their rights, and don't we don't take sort of uh, any any rights in the music or anything like that, uh, as what a record label would normally do. So they kind of supply the music directly to us. And we work now with 103,000 artists across Africa um, who is is doing this. And so from that part of the music industry was really the one that uh, significantly differs the whole rights management uh, area and makes it very difficult um, to create a music business because as much as sort of big artists are the one that very much drives uptake of a music service, small artists are actually the ones, the lack of small artists are the one that drives churn. So if you don't have like if you end up using a, a Spotify service and you can't find your your a specific artist, even if it's a smaller one, mm-hmm. that's the kind of beha- that's the kind of product experience that'll make you leave because yeah. you're wondering why did I get into this service? So it might be that the big artists are the one that drives you in, but the long tail of like an insane amount of artists and are really the one that is driving retention. And so we're talking about we're not talking about the biggest artists in Africa here. We're talking about the, the, the artists from northern Nigeria, from western Kenya, from western Tanzania, who have their, their own languages, like Africa has an crazy amount of languages, um, and has their own telling stories in, sort of local, in a local environment. And that's, that, that was really a big part of what made our business different, was that we wanted to be able to offer that catalogue to our, to our users. I was just going to say, is
0: it mainly downloads based or streaming-based or both?
1: Right. So on the user side, it's mainly download-based. So that's, that's the flip side of the model, which is that on the front end, um, we also deal with a user here who doesn't have, like, I think what, going back to also actually what you asked me in the very beginning, what made it interesting for me to be here is the fact that you're seeing this massive, massively, rapidly growing population that are getting online um, internet penetration rates are ridiculously high and growing really, really quickly. I think now we have uh, about four hundred million people on on the internet. I think in the next couple of years it's uh, supposed to be about above six hundred million and so it's just growing extremely fast mm-hmm. and that is what makes Africa interesting and that's what makes it interesting to work in content because now with that with all that um, reach, you can actually start serving a product at a very low cost compared to what you could before and so That is really what makes it interesting. But that being said, the internet consumption patterns and the internet usage is still extremely different in Africa than anywhere else. Mm. And so we find an audience that as much as they are getting online and they start having an internet connection and all that kind of thing, they are still very concerned about their data usage. They they use data very carefully. There's nothing like... uh, Well, there is, but... The idea of that Internet is just something I just use, um, is that is not existing. Mm-hmm. And so our, our product is very much tailor-made for a customer who uh, doesn't have a lot of Internet every day, has a, wants to make sure he has time for Facebook, Gmail, whatever other sort of services that is, that is important. Um, the Internet is his way to connect with the world or her. And so if music is going to be one of those products, then, I, then it's extremely important that we don't take a lot of data from them. And so download is the main way of consuming music. But essentially, our, our, our objective is to make music easily and legally free uh, f- available for, the, for the, um, the customer. Sort of the similar, similar sort of things that Spotify has empowered in, uh, the, the Western user for, but just with a focus on the local user here.
0: And so the revenue model then is, is advertising-based mainly?
1: Right. Yeah. So we we have several uh, commercial models. So we're looking at advertisement. Uh, we're looking at uh, paid, and then a really big area for us in, in terms of focus is the telco segment. So we have a, a telco partner in Tanzania. The, the partnership with Vodacom there, where you you buy Mdundo uh, bundles essentially. So you buy a package uh, from the telco who gives you access to the music, and you you, you pay for for that. So we have the sort of similar models that you've seen in the Western world. Um, I think. Yeah. If we, look at, if we look at the Western world, uh, the premium model is the one that is commercially very successful. So anyone in, 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 in the Western world will sort of say, well, how many people are paying for the service? But if you look at the Eastern world, Eastern, sort of Asia and East, there's actually a lot of content services that are 100% free. And they might have sort of different in-app purchase options, but the service is essentially a free and advertisement funded and so we kind of we kind of look at both east and west in that sense and find out what actually works for the different customer segments that we are maneuvering in.
0: I understand the um, you know the advertising one. I I understand the um, you know the 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 partnerships uh, with uh, with telcos. I actually used to to um, to get Spotify just like that in the UK. You know through Vodafone, you you buy it with the bundle, so and that worked perfectly. The uh, the other one I I you know I I would like to hear more about is uh, pay for downloads because there's a big financial infrastructure issue in Africa. Right in, in how to pay online. So how, how are you dealing with that? Is it are they paying through the likes of M-Pesa? How are they doing it for uh, from Dundo? Well,
1: so the short answer is that you do it through the telco because the telcos are the ones who have uh, access to the customers' wallets, right? And I think yep. that's really what that's really the challenge in Africa. And I think I think uh, mobile money is extremely exciting for the continent and has been very very successful in many markets. But I think an area that it doesn't really capture as much is maybe. Um, sort of very uh, low-value transactions. So it it works very well for shopping online and um, sort of making purchases, one-off purchases and so on, but it doesn't have those sort of qualities that, for example, a credit card has. Uh, It's not reoccurring, and I think, well, anyone who's been to both a a, a content service but also like the sort of fitness uh, industry, so depending on that you're being charged every month even if you don't use the service, and mobile money doesn't have that functionality. And so, so, so um, for recurrent that that's why for us uh, telcos are really uh, crucial both to our monetization and um, and growth strategy because they have that ability um, to do that. And I think also many uh, a lot of the telcos across the continent are realizing that it may be something. I think in the early days they were worried about using it uh, that power because. They wanted to make sure they didn't sort of cannibalize this on any of the other products. But I think um, we are seeing a a massive change in that space where uh, telcos are now actually thinking, well, this is a massive opportunity for us to be the billing partner for a lot of services. And so we are seeing telcos bundling up with many services and and even competing services because for them, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that the customer or their customers have choice and that they're obviously happy that they get a, a few cents for every transaction.
0: And in terms of your coverage, is it mainly East Africa? Or say, I, I live in Abidjan, I want to listen to to something Omundo, and I can do it.
1: Yeah, so it's it's available worldwide. So anyone in the world okay. can access our service. Our key focus, as you mentioned in the beginning, are our five are fifteen countries. Whereas in those fifteen countries, uh, five are the ones where we're the most mature in uh, Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. Our service is available all over and. Uh, most of the fifteen countries uh, that we have, that we are focusing on are with significant user bases. Um, so, so we, we are we are seeing good traction across a lot of African countries.
0: So you know we've been discussing now uh, the peculiarities of uh, you know the African market. And one of the things that I realized while interviewing uh, a few tech entrepreneurs is that oftentimes you're not only creating the company, but you're also creating the entire ecosystem around it. So, so tell us about the hurdles you faced at first. Like, did you have to educate the various stakeholders uh, in in the music industry, or whether you encountered resistance at first in convincing listeners to move to the platforms away from uh, illegal sources? What was the process like?
1: Right. No. Yeah. So I think I think uh, that's completely right. Um, in Africa, that 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 is both the I guess the the downside and the upside that you do end up uh, maybe taking having control of working on more um more parts of the supply chain and that you would actually want to and so for us that's obviously on the artist facing side where uh, like when we started off we thought it was going to be exactly like europe and we would get uh, all the music from a few major content partners like we had not imagined imagined that we would have to have a platform where 103,000 artists have to access directly like that was just not a part of our initial thinking um but i think the flip side of that is that when you do the legwork which we have done now now we actually have access to 103,000 artists across Africa who are using our service so the value is sort of it's not wasted I mean, we're creating an asset um, even though it's it's obviously uh, takes longer and uh, it's a bit more time consuming than if you could just plug into a record label who would give you all the music um, yeah. uh, so I think that sort of that creates sort of a, a, an interesting environment where if you do put, put in the work, and I, I think artists is one example, but we see the same facing advertising clients who many of them... Uh, well, so the same trend is happening in, in advertisement here as, as well as, as well in the world. Um, budgets are moving from traditional channels into to, uh, to digital chal- challenge, uh, channels. And we are, of course, on the digital side. But for many, for many of the, our immediate clients... They understand completely digital because they are, they are savvy. They understand marketing from this perspective. But internally in the companies that they're representing, there, there might be some, a generation who is very much used to uh, billboards and newspapers. And that's what they can relate to. And so there's a, there's a, there's a transition taking place in that space that does require us to uh, develop products and uh, educate a lot more than what we would have to do elsewhere in the world
0: you've been talking about the the fragmentation uh, of uh, of the market and and essentially what you've done is is, is, is a cr- creating a crowdsourcing uh, platform, right? because you don't have these big uh, record labels like uh, like in the West. and so so you had to uh, centralize essentially all the artists uh, in, in, in one platform. I, I'm just wondering whether you're considering not necessarily now but in the future, a Mdundo originals you know um uh, like netflix originals and, and 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 so on whether you're you you' thinking of an, of also making it a, a record label uh, itself
1: I understand why you're asking the question because it does sound very very straightforward and and, and my answer is going to be a little bit more uh, philosophical in terms of my views in the music business as a, as a whole, not necessarily specific to Mdundo. um but I think I think a, f- a few things are, are true as I see it, but but one of them is that I think the video streaming uh, and uh, Netflix and so on, uh, HBO and so on, is fundamentally different from music in the sense that we haven't actually seen... And, and, and I, like, I like mirroring uh, and, and seeing what's happening elsewhere, but we haven't seen any music services that has been very successful, at least that I'm aware of, where exclusivity has been the main driver. Like... Um, I, I, I think there was um, the, the whole sort of title project was was trying to drive that exclusivity, but it hasn't been extreme. Like, there's no one who's been really extremely successful with it. And 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 I, I don't know if it's um, a, a consumer that the consumer that's doing things differently. And I think it is a lot because when it's well, actually, I do know. I think what basically happens is when you're watching a video or if you're watching a, a series, you can release a part two, a part three, a part four. There's a constant yeah. series of. I, I'm, I'm hooked to something I'm hooked to a product within the product and that's why I'm paying for this and that's why I'm consuming this but mus- yeah. that's not how music works that's not how music is consumed there's of course uh, hardcore fans who will do it but majority of people will not sit down and uh, wait because there's a new song out uh, or a new album out from someone and sit and listen yeah. it from end to end to end um, I think in the music business we tend to think that's how everyone consumes music but in reality we're the only ones who are consuming it that way and and so so I think that's that's that makes those two business models film and, and video streaming compared to music streaming significantly different just because of the consumer behavior and the nature of the content. So so I do think that 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 makes that makes the business case you've just explained. It makes it's, it doesn't necessarily take the say, take anything away from that because we could still we obviously have tons of data from tons of artists and we could still. Like a record label in today's world is very much an sort of investment facility. They are helping to invest into artists and hoping to get a yield on that investment. And obviously, we do have a data set that would, uh, open, that could open up for such a business. So I'm not necessarily saying that that's not that's off the table. But I'm just saying more fundamentally, I think it works. The bit, I, I see the music industry work very differently um, than, than, the, than the video um, and sort of uh, film streaming.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, these are two uh, very different beasts uh, at the end of the day.
1: I I definitely think so, but but, uh, the comparison is obviously interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I guess so, obviously, a podcast makes that uh, very interesting because podcast is now actually something where there is another episode coming out, and there is you can you can you can put it to a frequency. You can expect a certain no- number of content coming out in a certain period of time, and I think that's why that's why podcasting is interesting. And I think also that's why you'll see global streaming music streaming services being willing to actually take ownership and invest. In a different yeah. way, into podcasting, than they're interested in, in than than comparison to to music. I
0: think that's a very interesting point you're making because when when you think about it, the difference then, because po- between podcasting and uh, and music is uh, storytelling, right? Which is very similar to uh, to videos and uh, you know and, and Netflix uh, uh, of the world, right? It's that story that you want to keep following, uh, and I think that's the major difference. Uh, and as you're saying, that's probably why, you know, Spotify's are, of the world are, are, are jumping on famous podcasts now and, and taking them definitely. in so that they can take that, a bit of that chunk of the market.
1: Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, it's, it's super interesting.
0: So let's, let's move on to a different topic. The key pillars of any company is financing and human capital. And last year in 2020, you IPO'd. It was oversubscribed, showing strong interest among investors. The company raised $6.4 million. So what was the rationale for going public other than the obvious fundraising element, of course?
1: Well, I think the obvious fundraising point is a big part <laughs> it's of a it. Big part of um, it's true. Like that's 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 all that's obviously uh, what it's what it was for. Like we we. We wanted to raise capital to the business to to grow and execute our plan. Um, at the time, we already had extremely good traction. We've been going for quite a number of years. And I would like I would say we've we've been a, we've been a, we've been going for quite a number of years, depending on angel rounds and and and, and, and smaller rounds. And and has, I think, with small my, my, what, what I thought was really interesting for us was that with relatively small amount of resources, we had built already a very very big user base and a very big business. Um, if you look at it from that sense, I like obviously IPOing and going from there. On what's the brand has increased uh, the brand value and brand awareness has increased a lot. But like uh, if we go back to June last year, so prior to the IPO. We already had 5 million users using our service. We already had artists from 34 different African countries. We already had a massive network of content. So there's a lot of things that I really felt like we had done extremely well and we felt like we had gotten the model right. We had found found the sweet spot. We had found what our model was supposed to be and we were ready for for that funding. Um, So that's, that's that's very much the rationale that the business was ready to grow. And, uh, for that to for that to happen at the speed we wanted it to happen we needed capital uh,
0: was it also I was trying to get at whether it was also the opportunity for some investors to exit
1: I think creating liquidity liquidity into a share is always uh, exciting especially when you've been, been going since 2012 mm. so I think for me that was exciting uh, not necessarily for my own uh, for my own holding I'm, I'm first of all locked in but I'm also not going anywhere. But but I thought it was interesting. I think as an entrepreneur, you, you you do kind of feel like you you want to pay that back and you want to, you want to, the people who believed in you eight years ago mm. should have a choice. And, I, and that was really exciting to me I must I must say yeah, for sure. but I, I don't I don't actually follow uh, what is what is what is happening in terms of those original um, shareholders, but if I can sort of talk from the ones I do keep very closely in touch with, I think many of them are. I'm more excited about, well, if it can go here, well, then what's next? Yeah. Like, I don't think, I think uh, it's it's obviously a massive validation of our business, but I think, I don't think anyone was driven by it when you, sort of from a from a sales perspective. I think if you get into a music startup in Africa, it's because you want a, you want a lot or nothing. Like, you yeah. are taking a risk and you are, in, hopefully, if you're in your right mind, you are investing knowing that this can be nothing or it can be really a lot. Yeah. And so... I don't think anyone. I, I think at least the ones that I am the most in touch with. For them, this was just a part of of that. Uh, it was a stepping stone to get there. Um, I think if we look at majority of the trading activity, and this is again a, a speculations because I don't follow very closely um, the individuals. But I'm, I'm guessing more likely is that those who have come in after the IPO are the one who are who are trading depending on what they what they feel is right and the information that they have, uh, both selling and, and on, both on the sales and the buyer side. Um, I think those who've been with us for many years and have seen how far we've made it, they they want to keep being a part of the business moving forward as well.
0: Yeah, I think I think a rational investor would want to see the future of the story.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you've been a part of the business for long. You've you've been a part of the story. Um, like, of course, everyone is different, and everyone has their own motivations. And like. If we looked at our cap table before that, like we had a very very long list of very small angel investors, so less than one percent ownership each, so it wouldn't have an impact on really anything yeah. if they were to deci- if they were to decide to sell out. um The majority, of the bigger investors who were above one, and definitely about, there was one, one above five percent, uh, they are currently very active in the business, and many of them locked in, and uh, no know more to show confidence than anything else. I think. They are people who are interested in this, in doing another ten x, uh, if not, if not more.
0: Yeah, and and I guess the uh, the money will be mainly used to for growth and, and marketing or, or other other and other plans uh, to put the funds into work.
1: No, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So um, that, is, that is exactly the, the, the plan. So there is, we, we felt like we have a model, we have a growth model, and we have a, a business that was, that was really working well, and we wanted to fuel that uh, further. Um, and so I think uh, taking over uh, a bigger geographical area is an obvious, it's an obvious uh, focus for us. Um, and so that has been what we have aggressively been doing in the last, in the last uh, year or so. Um, focusing on the 15 countries that that are our focus countries now, but in the next two years, well, actually in the next year, uh, between uh, the IPO and June uh, 2022, we are are projecting to grow to 18 million users. So that's in a a bit more than a year from now, to 18 million monthly active users and and, and focusing on 21 African countries. And I think also uh, to to return to the point around um, uh, raising the the, the rationale about raising the funds in the first place, Mm I think what is really, really exciting is that we are at a tipping point on, as a continent where if we looked at, like so, so I was sort of rational behind uh, the investment case in the first place was to look at what are, what are, what are other services trading at? And, and we, we were seeing, I think we're seeing a massive upside in terms of value per user in, in this market compared to any other market. And so I think that's really what drives the investment case for many investors is we are seeing the services, not necessarily in the Western world, because the West is completely different. I'm completely aware of that, but we're seeing services in India who is traded at uh, like 18, 50, uh, 18, 20 times higher uh, value per user than than what, than what we are doing. and so uh, what we are viewing at. and so, so I think it just that is really the rationale for you know what there's a massive upside here. Yeah. If, if, the, if the continent keeps developing the way that it's very strongly looking at, and, and if the projections that are, are there is. Uh, I, I realized, uh, then there's a, there's a really, really strong investment case around, around Africa as a whole.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So now on the human capital side, you know, we're yep. talking about expansion now and, and, and Dundo has been expanding uh, over, over the, the past years. So what do you look for when you hire new people? And, and what has been your experience in, in finding top talent in Africa? Has it been a challenge for you?
1: Right. Well, so I want to start with, because there's a question that, that comes a lot both in these kinds of interviews and podcasts and also in, in terms of uh, like, uh, on the side conversations, conferences and so on. Yeah. From my experience, finding talent in Africa is so much easier than anywhere else. Interesting. I, think it's, Interesting. I think it's so easy because I think we have a, t- a massive, massive population, uh, a lot of really hungry, entrepreneurial, very smart, uh, and, of course, also a bit of very, very increasing well-educated workforce who is coming straight out and want to prove themselves and want to grow something. And, and for anyone who's been on the continent will know pretty much where you go. There's a feeling of uh, entrepreneurship is what's going to drive this continent forward and the youth is what's going to drive this continent forward. So from my experience, like hiring anyone on this continent is much, much easier um, and on working with anyone on this continent from a partnership perspective is also much, much easier than anywhere else in the world because here there's a drive, there's an ambition, we want to go somewhere. And, and, and I don't think finding talent is, is really challenging. I think those I normally see who says finding challenge a talent is, 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 is difficult is often because they're not offering a good job or yeah. they're not actually like they're they expecting to get double the work for half the money and yeah. that's just not how the world works. Yeah. If like, talent is extremely affordable as well, even within an African content, you'll get, you'll get someone who can do much more than anyone in, in Europe or the US who's willing to work at a much, much lower rate because of how the economy is here. Um, so I think from an entrepreneurial perspective, it's a dream scenario. You can actually go out and access talent who would come to work for you just because they think you are awesome. Whereas try and get that happening anywhere else in yeah. the Western world, if, if, like that's not going to happen. Like you got to pay them a massive number of, of uh, sort of like you have got to pay them salary and they have a high expectation in terms of benefits. Yeah, they'll always compare you to any other employer around. Yeah. They're not going to work for you just because they like what you're doing. Yeah, but I do think that actually leads into my second point, which is we are extremely fortunate that. Music is an area that a lot of people are extremely passionate about, and 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 I think for those who 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 know me, hopefully they'll find the same about me. Uh, People love music that works in music, and that means that we have a passion point that I think makes it easier to attract talent. You'll find people like pretty much anyone who who you meet who are working in music will say that two things are true. Uh, Number one, uh, pretty much everyone who works in music took a pay cut to work there because they wanted to. They thought it was cool. And, uh, and, and number two, most of them were wanted to be musicians in the first place. They just weren't good enough. And so now they're working for a music company. Yep. And so that's, that is very much the fact everywhere. So getting talent and working with people in music is extremely uh, exciting to me because they are passionate and they want to change things. And I think that's uh, true for Africa as a
0: whole as well. So passion, I mean, passion clearly uh, helps a lot uh, in, uh, in this case. And the other side I wanted to mention when you said for those who, who find it difficult to, to hire people in Africa, probably because they also don't give enough time to training. Uh, I mean, you have to train those people. They come in uh, motivated, you know, they have skills, etc. but you have to train them for the, uh, for the exact purpose at hand.
1: No, I, I definitely agree with you, but I also, to be honest with you, I also just think often they're not offering a good job. Like yeah. I, what I, I from, from my conversations with all, the, all other entrepreneurs, and it's 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 comes a lot from expats, but it also comes from locals. Like you're just not offering a good job for anyone. Like and definitely not like definitely not what you what you're expecting and what you're willing to pay the person doesn't add up. Like if you want if you want to build a business, you got to get good people on your team. Africa has a very diverse workforce. There's tons of very well-educated and brilliant people who will, if they are passionate about what they are doing, what you're doing, they will come and work for you, and yeah. they will do it at a fraction of what you could find someone with those skills and abilities anywhere else without any training. But then you're completely right; it is a diverse workforce. So there's also parts of your company that requires a lot of training. But if I can say it without uh, sort of offending anyone, I'd much rather have a workforce that I have here now than than the school class when i went to primary school or secondary school in denmark like i don't feel like i would get that same passion and drive from that sort of mm. section of people than i go than i do from the people that i go to work with every day here and and i i don't know if that's uh, to i i'm i'm the only one in in our company who's 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 not uh, local
0: yeah i mean i guess you know the energy is is essential right especially for for startups and uh, if you bring people who uh, who don't have that drive uh, i mean half of the work is is uh, is is a failure
1: definitely yeah. definitely and, and the talent as well like with a, with a, with an employment rate that we are facing here like you'll find people who are extremely well educated and trained um and they can maybe get a like i think the whole other aspect is you have a lot of uh people here who are very well educated even outside of africa who comes back and the jobs like they can get jobs but the jobs are not exciting for them yeah. and so yeah. Uh, they, they they don't want to start working in uh, again without hopefully um offending anyone but in a junior position in some newspaper or whatever mm. like that's like they, that's not exciting they've gone they've gone outside of africa to get educated and they don't want to start at the bottom of the ladder back here and they are really talented and they just don't have that track record that that is maybe needed uh locally and so so i think genuinely speaking it's i think it's a bit of a myth uh, i haven't met it uh that it is hard to find both talented people and, and hardworking and, and in any way sort of uh, managing people for me, I think has been, uh, I would much rather do it here than anywhere else in the world.
0: No, I mean, these are interesting points because, I mean, what it really says is, I mean, there, there is a job mismatch that we need to uh, take into account.
1: So, But I also think, like, so, 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 sorry to keep going on about it, but I also oh, m- know a lot of those people who come who come back with a good sort of degree and whatever else, and they're being offered a job with some startup that is offering them $500 a month. And I'm just like, that's not, that's not a salary for anyone. Like yeah. if someone has come back and has studied somewhere in the, in the, in the, uh, globally and is coming back to do something and is very talented data scientist or whatever else it might be, that's just not offering a good job for anyone. Yeah. And then yeah. it's hard. To, and it's obviously for you that it's hard to find, to find talent yeah, that's not because serious. that's just not, that's just not, not matching. <laughs> it's not matching <laughs> the level. Yeah, exactly.
0: So, sense. so we haven't spoken yet about, uh, you and your role within the company, so, as as a CEO, what does a typical workday look like, and any morning routine you may have and feel comfortable sharing with us?
1: Yeah, well, as uh, as everyone else probably says, they spend a lot of time reading the news and working out, but it's probably <laughs> not true <for> yeah, exactly. <laughs> in, in most of the in most of the cases. Um, so let me, let me not say that. Let's take um, that out of the way. I, <laughs> I think genuinely speaking as so a morning routines not necessarily but I like I like spend I I spend a lot of time with people. I think that's that's the one thing that I I I find has, that I learned very early on was very valuable my my own people. Like I I dedicate two full days pretty much in the work week to just be with my management team and discuss ideas and if they need 30 minutes of my time I'll give them an hour and I learned that early on uh, the hard way. Well, I think I think it's such good time given out and, 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 and it, I find that the sort of piece of information that, that when I talk to other uh, leaders, they find the most interesting about my work day because basically spending time with your management team and with the team in general, not only management team, also everyone else, basically sorts issues that would otherwise exist when you're not around. Mm. And I think that's like I find that the return on investment on that time is better than anything else. Because if I schedule a one-hour meeting that could have been done in half an hour, then we'll end up spending 20 minutes discussing other things uh, or maybe digging into something that we wouldn't otherwise have had time to dig into. And, And I actually see that those tasks that would have otherwise been doing those two days are picked up by team members because we had more time to... To, to sort of get to know each other and, and talk, get to know each other, the different tasks that we are involved in and, and understand what is actually happening within an individual's uh, workday. So, yeah, I think that's, to me, I think it's the most valuable lesson has been to spend a lot of time um, with, with the people, especially who's close in my team, but also generally speaking. To me, that has been an extremely big, has given me a really good return on investment.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're not in your ivory tower, basically.
1: Um, no, no I, I, well I've, uh, it could be that. Uh, that doesn't really matter. You can still be that and spend time with people. Um, yeah. uh, I don't think I am <laughs> but, but, <laughs> like but I Mark's think I, <laughs> I think I think you could you could still be that like you could still sort of see a big a big like very strong hierarchy and, and spend time with people. I've seen that management style as well. I do like spending a lot like I don't find, find myself in that sort of situation. I think that's more an, a, a matter of that. If you start a business with someone, then you do get to know them very, very well. And so I find all the people who've been a part of the journey up until the IPO, like when we IPO, we were not more than 11, 12 full-time people who's been working with me for many years and has gone through ups and downs. And so uh, I think more that has some, that's just more because of friendship than it's because of hierarchy and and leadership style, really.
0: Of course. Uh, So looking ahead, what are your next big plans or your vision from Dundo?
1: The sort of plans that has been put out there is that by the, the June next year, we have to go to 18 million uh, users. And that's that's basically the, the the target we are chasing right now and, and that we're very well track, on track for. A really big part of, of our growth is focused around telco partnerships. So we launched our first partnership with Vodacom in Tanzania uh, last quarter. Uh, uh, we announced in our uh, quarterly report that came out on Tuesday that for this following quarter, we will... Um, in the very short term, we are expecting another partnership and 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 to be to be launched in this quarter as well. And um, so we are working heavily on them, especially within our five focus markets or the five commercial focus markets: um, Kenya, uh, Tanzania, Uganda, Nigeria, and, and Ghana. So that's really it. And then we're just ex- extremely exciting to es- execute many of the things that we have been uh, we've been wanting to really focus on in the last couple of years. Mm. And I think to add to that, like we haven't even talked much about African music industry as a whole. Uh, Like The African music industry is extremely exciting at the moment. It's uh, growing massive and very quickly. Obviously, Nigeria is spearheading in many ways, but it's pulling up the continent in an amazing way. Uh, Spotify just launched two months ago, fueling the the industry even further. Mm. Uh, Many of the bigger record labels have ambitions in Africa. And so it's just an extremely, extremely exciting industry to be a part of. It doesn't look anything like what it was three years ago, and in three years from now, it's going to look completely different again.
0: Fantastic. So so last question for you. What would you tell young people starting or planning to start their entrepreneurial journeys in Africa? And what does it really take to succeed?
1: Oh, it's such a hard question, right? Like there's so many things (laughs) to look at. Uh, There's so many things to look (laughs) at. (laughs) No, I, I think I think what has worked very well for me is that what has been really important for my journey is that every single sort of week, day, month, year that I've been working on this business, I've been extremely proud of what we have achieved till that day. And I think when I see other entrepreneurs who both are failing and also some that still makes it, they put an enormous pressure on themselves in terms of that they have to make up for time or they have to, like the future has to sort of make up for lost sort of uh, sweat or whatever else it might be. And I, I think that is, that I think is a very unhealthy mindset. Like I think, be very, very proud and happy for what you have built to that day. And if you're not proud and happy for that, then there's probably two reasons to it. Number one, your business is just not working because then you haven't achieved anything. Or number two, you're really bad at highlighting the good parts of your life. And I think those two things are really important. It's important to evaluate every year. Have I achieved something? Have have we moved the needle? Because if we haven't moved the needle between December and December, well, then you're probably, I'm wasting my time. And if you have moved the needle, then... Be sure that you really identify it and say, that well, this is this is something I can be proud of. I've closed this deal. I made this partnership. I reached this KPI. It's something to be proud of and take it with you, instead of being too stuck with the things that you haven't done, because then you'll just go go crazy."
0: So, keeping track of your milestones and and, and the positive milestones.
1: Yeah, definitely keep track of them and, and make sure that you're that you're happy with what you have done. Like, don't. It, it, I really think like thinking about the future as uh, this sort of amazing thing that's going to come and give back to your life, mm. that's uh, an illusion. And so the quicker you give up on that illusion, the better. I, I think I feel like I've sacrificed a lot. I feel like, especially when I just came out of uni, I felt like, am I getting the same learning experiences? And am I getting the same uh, salary? Am I getting the same all kinds of different things as if I had chosen a different career path? But I didn't. I chose this one. and uh, And I think what kept me going with those doubts were there was the fact that if I looked back at uh, what my work was like, what my life was like and what we were achieving, um, I could actually sit down and say, you know what? I would have not been, I would have been a, a sadder person if I had been without this experience. And so I think that's—that's was really important.
0: Well, uh, Martin, it was an awesome conversation. Uh, I don't want to keep you uh, any longer. Thanks for your insights today. Thank you so today. much for taking me. No, it was awesome. No,
1: thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for talking to, to me. It was, it was really good. And uh, and uh, it's a really great conversation. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. And to the audience listening, I strongly encourage you to discover or rediscover African music through Mdundo at mdundo.com. That's m-d-u-n-d-o.com. Thanks for listening. And until next time. Hey, everyone, again, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on your favorite social media. That's it for now. I'm Father Jerry, and you've been listening to How to Make It in Africa.